turn to Acts chapter 25 with me. This has already been mentioned this morning. Uh, for those of you who are uh, new to the church, we'd love to have you uh, come join us for a newcomer's lunch after the church. 12.15, we'll be in the gym uh, having lunch together, so I'd love to have you, you be a part of that. There's also uh, a, a lunch today for Zach Anderson, and, and I, I don't know the room that that's in, but in fairness, neither did his parents this morning when I asked them. So, but look for Zach, and that's where the meal will be, but no, we can help you at the uh, information desk. I forgot to ask someone about that, sorry. And then uh, also, you know, as you're turning there to Acts 25, um, there's a, as you know, the, the ministry fair, and I encourage you to, to go and look at the different ministry opportunities that exist uh, for us here at the church, and, and, and just be in prayer for those, too. It's a wonderful thing of the Lord to be able to, to see the, the different ministries that he's called his people to, and so be, be in prayer for, for those. Acts chapter 25, remember Paul has been taken to Caesarea, and at the end of chapter 24, uh, the governor Felix is succeeded. And Felix leaves Paul in, in prison as a favor to the Jews, and, and now Festus is the governor. We're going to see what is Festus going to do with, with Paul. And so we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 25 together this morning. If you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. First one, Acts 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Verse 6, after he, stayed, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat in the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had, heard, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are not uh, the people who we should be. This morning we confess our, our sin to you. We confess uh, our heart attitudes that are sinful. We confess our actions that are not in line with your glory. We confess this morning that we are deserving of, of your wrath. And yet this morning our, our hope, our confidence, our, our trust is in your Son, Jesus Christ. 
We trust in, in his perfect work. We trust that by, by faith in him, you have accounted our sin to him and in his righteousness to us. And so we are, are coming to you this morning with confidence. And through the work of your son and our, our faith in him, we believe that you have given us new life. And we believe that, that you've given us the, the, the Holy Spirit to enable us to hear these words this morning and, and, and apply them in our lives and to be changed by your word. Make it so, we, we pray, in your son Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a tension that we've talked about before that exists in Scripture. And, and that tension is between God's sovereignty, and we, we believe that God is sovereign, as, as good Reformed Baptist folks, we believe, okay, God is, God is completely in control of all things, and so we, we trust that to be true. And yet, the, the other side of the tension that we also believe to be true is that we are responsible for our decisions. We believe in human responsibility, that God holds us accountable for the decisions that we make. And so, God is sovereign, and yet we are also responsible. We, we think that that tension exists in Scripture. We, we've talked about that before. I, I think we've also talked before about a book by D.A. Carson called Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. And, and in that book, he argues that this isn't a problem we can solve. It's a, a tension to be explored. God is sovereign, yet we're responsible. And in the book, he does something very interesting. He talks about how in, in the time after the Old Testament and before the New Testament was written, in that what we call the intertestamental time, Jewish rabbis and scribes, when they encountered this, this tension in the Old Testament, they would often try to, to, to do away with it. So, for example, Genesis chapter 50. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is talking to his brothers who have sold him into slavery, and, he, and as God has worked through that, they're, they're talking to, to Joseph, and they're, they're nervous about what he's going to do. And then in verse 19 of Genesis 50, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And then verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, so human responsibility. You're, you meant evil against me, you, you're, you're guilty of that. Yet, divine sovereignty, God meant it for good to bring it about. So God brought about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. One of the best examples in Scripture of this tension. God was sovereign over what happened. The brothers were responsible for the evil that they did. God was sovereign. They were responsible. And D.A. Carson talks in his book about how during that intertestamental time, whenever scribes came to this section of, of Scripture, these, these, these rabbinic writings, they would sometimes try to do away with that tension. So they'd come to verse 20, and they would just take God out. Joseph would, as they kind of translated the passage or, or taught on it, they'd say, well, uh, these brothers meant it for good, and they, and they don't even mention God. Or they would translate it this way. They would say, uh, and Joseph said, you meant it for good, but God is glad. You meant it for evil, but God is glad that good came out of it, right? So taking away that that tension, well, we shouldn't do that. We should hold both of these truths simultaneously: that we're responsible for the actions that we do, and yet God is is sovereign over all things, as Jesus says. Not a not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of God's control. Every hair on our head is numbered. God is in control of the big things and the tiny things and everything in between. You say, okay, well, how does that relate to Paul before 
Festus. In this passage, we see Paul making a decision. And you and I are called to make decisions as well. And you and I make decisions in a world in which God is sovereign, in which we are responsible. And that tension can sometimes cause some, some angst among Christians. Some Christians, and we fall on both, both sides of this, some Christians can just kind of simply dismiss the, the sovereignty of God and, and they can, they can uh, just, just feel this incredible sense of overwhelmness as they think about this decision that they need to make and, and they can be paralyzed as they think about the, their, their responsibility to make a good decision. Or they can, they can just be kind of flippant with their responsibility and just say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just going to make decisions and God's sovereign and what's going to happen is going to happen. There's, there's a tension here as we make decisions, and we see it in this text as well. And we want to think this morning about how we can make decisions in light of the fact that God is sovereign and we want to do what God wants us to do. We have a responsibility to do that. And, and let's not lack confidence in making our decision. And let's also not be arrogant as we make decisions. But let's... In God's sovereign will, trusting in that, make decisions that are honoring to him in both small areas of our life and, and big areas of our lives. Here's the main idea that I want us to, to think about together this morning. It's this. One of the ways that God implements his sovereign plan is by enabling his people to make wise, God-glorifying decisions. That's one of the ways that God, as he exercises sovereignty over the world, that's one of the ways that he brings about his plan. He enables us, he enables his people to make wise, God-glorifying decisions. So we're in the midst of a crisis. We're not quite sure what to do. Maybe it's a Maybe it's a parenting decision that we have to make. We have some older children, and, and these older children are, are living at home with us still, but they, they don't have a desire to, to be a part of, of, of the church. They're not walking with the Lord, and so we, we can struggle. How, how do I respond to this? You know, do, I, do I push? Do I back off? How exactly do I handle this tension? And we say, you know what? God's sovereign in this. I'm going to think about the biblical principles, and yet I'm also trust that God has enabled me as whatever his sovereign plan is for my children, I'm going to trust in that, and, and I'm, I'm going to believe that I'm going to, as I make the decisions that I make, I can trust in God as he gives me direction to walk in obedience to him. Part of his sovereign plan is to enable me to make wise, God-glorifying decisions. And so what we're going to do as we look at this text is we're going to see Paul presented with a choice, and then we're going to see Paul make a decision, and we're going to see how... In God's grace, we can do the same. So let's, first of all, look at verses 1 through 9, and we'll see that Paul is presented with a choice. Paul is presented with a choice. It says this in verse 1. It says, Now three days later, after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem. Now, what's, what, 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 do you know, what do we notice here? As we see Paul presented with a choice, we see some themes that have occurred over and over again in this section of, of Acts. We see kind of three things continue to happen. The first thing we see is we see a, a continued determined persecution. As we begin chapter 25, we see that the Jews are continued in their determination to persecute Paul. 
It says in verse 1, it's talking about this, this guy Festus. We know less about Festus than we do Felix. Remember, Paul was taken to Caesarea around 57 AD. And now how long has he been there? Two years. So two years have passed. It's now 59 AD. And Festus has just become governor of this region. And we know from historical sources that Festus doesn't live that much longer. He dies in 62 AD. So he's not very long for this world as he encounters Paul here in Caesarea. From what we can glean about Festus, we know that in that short reign, he, he did some good things. He was uh, generally a, a better ruler than Felix was. He's, he's fair. He does some things to, to rid this region of some people who had been causing some, some terror among the, country, the residents of the countryside. So he seems overall to have been a, a pretty good ruler, but not for very long. Festus arrives as governor in Caesarea, and within a very short period of time, three days, he leaves Caesarea and he goes down to Jerusalem. Why? Because he's a pretty smart guy. He recognizes that he needs to be on the Jews' good side, and so he goes to where their leaders are, and he talks with them, confers with them, and he wants to, to know what their concerns are. And what's interesting, it's been two years since Paul has gone down to Caesarea, and you would, have, you would have thought that maybe they would have chilled out a little bit, right? Paul's been in jail for a couple years there in Caesarea. He's not in Jerusalem causing them problems anymore. And the, the governor comes here to, to, to Jerusalem to talk to you. And, and maybe you talk about, hey, let's talk about some infrastructure issues or, you know, let's, let's, let's build back better or something like that. That's, that's not what they do. They say, you know what, uh, at least in what Luke brings out and what they say, what are they, they most concerned about? They're most concerned about this guy, Paul. They, they want to they deal with him. And they say, why don't you bring Paul here to Jerusalem because we want to talk to him. And talk to him means we want to, once again, ambush him on the way and kill him, right? There is a determined persecution, a, a determined desire to, to persecute Paul. And so Festus, in verses 4 and 5, responds with some diplomacy. He says, well, you know what, I'm... I'm not going to be here very long in Jerusalem. I'm going to talk to you here. And then I'm preparing to go back to Caesarea. And, and those of you who are in positions of leadership, you can come with me if you're able. And you can bring any evil accusations or any accusations of evil that you have against this guy. You can do it there in Caesarea. He doesn't seem to be aware of their plot. He wants things to be legal. But it's, it's interesting that that's his response. So there's continued determined persecution in verses 1 through 5. What else, is, what else do we see continue? We see continued false accusations. So a few days go by, eight, ten days go by. Festus goes down to Caesarea. And in verse 6, it tells us that he, he takes his, his seat there on the tribunal. And the tribunal we've, we've encountered before in the book of Acts. It would have been this raised uh, platform, and on this platform sits this this stone seat, and that's the seat from which this uh, ruler would issue judicial decisions. We've seen it uh, several places. Uh, saw in Acts 12, Herod sits on it. Galileo uh, sits on one in Corinth in the book of Acts. And so there's this raised platform. There's some stone from which the, the rulers judge, and Festus goes, and he sits there on that tribunal, and we see another trial. Remember the, the process of a Roman trial? 
the people bring accusations, the accused is brought in, the accusations are given in more detail, then the person has a chance to defend themselves, and then the judge issues a ruling. So those five steps of the Roman trial. Luke kind of truncates what happens here. So it says in verse 6, he sits on the, uh, the tribunal, Festus says. Then verse 7, it says he arrives, the Jews come, they, 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 uh, they, they bring Paul in, he stands in the middle. So that's kind of that second part of the trial. And then the third part of the trial begins in verse 7. Look at what it says. It says they're bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So Paul's there in the middle, and they just begin to, to throw all these accusations at Paul. Again, what's the desire? The desire is to make these accusations of such a kind that Festus has to act, that he sees Paul as a threat, or at least he sees their determination to deal with Paul as a threat to him and the peacefulness of his reign. They're trying to force his hand. Serious charges, weighty charges, all of them unprovable. Maybe some of you have run cross country or maybe you were on swim team when you were younger and, and uh, you know that feeling of, of being engaged in a, a physical test of wills against a competitor of, of kind of a physical nature. Maybe you're, you, you can remember this, being on swim team. Maybe some of you are on swim team. And, and I, I think one of the hardest things to do is to swim laps fast as you're just kind of struggling for energy and struggling for air as, as, you, as you swim these laps. And maybe in a situation where you're in practice, you're in, a, you're in a competition, and you're swimming these laps, and you can just sense that competitor on, on your right side. And you've, you've swam against them before, and you, you know that, that they're a little bit better than you. Maybe you're a little bit better than them sometimes. You're, you're pretty evenly matched. And as you're swimming these laps, lap after lap, you have this sense, okay, maybe just a little bit more and they'll give up, right? Maybe just, maybe just a little bit more and they won't have the energy to keep on going. I just need to, to keep my form just a little bit longer. Uh, Whitney, whenever she, had a, she ran cross country in college, uh, her, her college coach encouraged them to, to pass people on the hills. You know, as you're in a race and you're running hard and you come to a hill, just kind of psych out your opponent by, by running past them on a hill. And you know, a little smile as you go by, you know. <laughs> nice day, yeah, right? My coach said trip them as they go by, so. <laughs> but it messes with their heads, right? It's, it's demoralizing. Look, here's, as we think about making decisions in the world, here's what you need to know. The opposition is not going to stop it's going to be continued opposition. Satan is not going to give up attacking the church. There, there's no end in sight. It's discouraging as we come to chapter 25, potentially to say, man, uh, this, this is just like, you know, repeat from chapter 24. When is this going to stop? It's been two years, and the answer is never. Paul's, the opposition to Paul never ceases. And as you think about the decisions that you're going to need to make in life, understand this. If, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you think there's some decision you're going to be able to make to remove yourself from that equation of, of opposition, the answer is no, unless the decision is to, to stop following Christ. 
So as you think about the decisions you need to make, understand that's the milieu, that's the culture in which we're going to make decisions, a culture in which the enemy is going to continue in his opposition to our desire to glorify God. Here's the third thing that continues. There's continued, though, faithful defense. Again, feels a little bit repetitive. Paul continues to defend himself. Verse 8. Paul argues in his defense, and the word that's, that's used there is this, this legal term to describe his defense that we've talked about before, and, and he says there's, there's three categories of which I am innocent. I'm, I'm innocent of going against the law of the Jews. I haven't violated the laws of the temple. I haven't violated Roman laws. I haven't offended Caesar. I haven't committed offense against any of these three areas, Jews, temple, Caesar, Rome, none of that. Again, Luke is truncating what's happening here, but we see that Paul continues to persevere in doing good. He continues to to persevere in talking about his his innocence. I think the the difference sometimes as we think about making decisions, the difference between making bad decisions and good decisions is, is an issue of perseverance. You think about the, that old saying, the difference between a, what's the difference between a good rider and a great rider? It's not the first draft. The, the, the first draft doesn't make a good rider or a great rider. It's, it's the last draft. It's that willingness to continue and continue to refine and to hone. And it's true of, of so many areas of, of life. Oftentimes people ask me like on a Saturday or a Friday, hey, are you ready for Sunday? I have never been ready for Sunday. Like there's never been a time where I'm like, well, I'm done. I just run out of time each week, right? And, and maybe uh, you feel that as, as well in some areas of your life. You know, there's, there's no area where you reach, okay, there's, there's absolute perfection has been reached, right? Paul, he continues to defend himself. There's no end in sight. It's not going to stop. There's going to be a continued need to make good faith, make the decision to be faithful. The Christian life isn't about momentary obedience. We make decisions from a place where we have totally committed ourselves to walking in obedience to the Lord. And so we come to verse 9. So there's been continued determined persecution. There's been continued false accusations. Now there's been continued faithful defense. And now with with that as kind of the backdrop, as that kind of the the foundation, now a decision is presented, a, a choice is presented. Verse 9, Festus says to Paul, look, uh, and, and notice this, it says, wishing to do the Jews a favor. That's the third time that word favor has occurred in just a few verses, right? At the end of chapter 24, Felix wants to do the Jews a, a favor. In uh, verse 2, sorry, verse 3, they ask for a favor against Paul, and now it seems that Festus, like Felix, wants to do the, the Jews a favor. He wants to, to show them a, a certain type of, of kindness and give them what they want. And so with that as his desire, he presents this option to Paul. And, and by the way, it seems like he wants to do them a favor, but he also wants to do it in an ethical way where his conscience is appeased. And he says, look, Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem we can go up to we can leave Caesarea, we can go to Jerusalem, and there you can be tried on these charges before me. And presumably what would happen there in Jerusalem is that he would still, uh, Festus would still be in charge of the ultimate outcome of the decision that's made, but the Jews would have greater influence. Instead of being here in Caesarea, on the, on the coast there, where they are kind of trying to, 
to, to bring these accusations against Paul. Now it'd be on their home turf and they'd be kind of like these advisors to Festus as he made the decision. And that's the choice that is presented to Paul. So let's talk about how Paul makes a decision. Look at verses 10 through 12. Paul makes a decision. And there's, there's no indication in the text that God has divinely revealed, hey, this is exactly what you should say if Festus offers you a choice to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't, there's no indication that, that, that he has some sort of special divine revelation. He, he has to make a decision. And I want to look at this text and, and see some principles that I think we can glean from Paul's actions here. Kind of five things we see in light of this reality that we have a sovereign God who is in charge of all things, and yet we also have this ability to walk in obedience to him. Here's, here's five things that I think help us to make good, God-glorifying decisions with a sovereign God. Number one, we trust God. We trust God. Paul trusts that God has the, the end in mind and, and, and in control. Whatever happens between this moment and the end, Paul has absolute confidence that, that God is going to bring that end to completion. In Romans chapter 8, we, we think of this, these familiar words that Paul would say. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So we, we know the end game. Verse 29, for those whom he, and listen to this process, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so we, we know that God from eternity past has had this plan. He predestined and he brings it about. Paul trusts in that. Ephesians chapter 1, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So right now, we, we have the Holy Spirit, and he's a guarantee of our future inheritance, and we have that guarantee until the end, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul trusts God. He says, okay, I'm, I'm here in this moment where I'm called to make a decision, and I trust that God, in his, his love for me, in his a preordained plan from eternity past, before there was even time, has the end, has the end under control. I, I trust in that. And so despite the turbulence of my immediate circumstances, I'm, I'm confident in the end. Uh, Whitney and I have, have noticed something recently about my, my parking ability, my parking inability. Um, <laughs> Apparently, and, and, and I hadn't noticed this to be true of me, um, but apparently when I, when I go into a parking lot, I see infinite possibilities. And uh, sometimes I start going toward a parking spot and, and suddenly another parking spot looks, looks better. And so at the last minute I go, nope, this one. And I hear this, whoa, from the other side of the car. And I, and I say, Are you okay? Yeah, just surprised. And I realized, me too. Like, we're the, I, it, it feels very random which, which spot we're going to end up in, and it's very uh, disorienting for, for both of us, really, honestly. Uh, it causes some 
uh, some, uh, some vertigo <laughs> uh, on the part of my poor wife. You know? she, she rightly doesn't, doesn't believe I have a great end in mind. You know? It's, it's uh, as close as I can get to, to randomness, right? God doesn't drive through our lives that way, right? He has the end and the means planned out. And as we make decisions, we begin with that, that trust. We trust God. Number two, we obey God. Number two, we obey God. I, I, as I think about obeying God, that limits the available choices I have, right? Now, there's a couple things I want, I want to notice about obedience in this passage. First of all, obedience, obeying God means we keep in mind his overarching purpose for our lives. Sometimes when people say, well, I, w- I want to obey God, they think of it in a very limiting way. They say, okay, well, here are all the things that Scripture explicitly says I can't do, and so I'm, I'm not going to do those things, and now I have all of these options in front of me. And I don't think it's a very biblical way to understand obedience. Now, of course, we don't want to do the things he's told us not to do, but we see in Scripture that God has told us also what he wants us to do. The, the purpose of our lives is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So as I make decisions, I'm not just saying, okay, what is it that I cannot do? I'm also asking, what is it that I can do that maximizes me fulfilling the purpose for which I was created? It's, it's, a, it's a much more narrow way to understand true obedience of God. And I would suggest, by the way, this is a huge question that Christians need to do a better job of of wrestling with. Not just what does God expressly forbid me from doing, but what is it that will maximize my fulfilling his purpose for me? And how I answer that question in my specific life, it might be, there might be things that God excludes me from doing that he doesn't exclude you from doing. Maybe there's some financial decisions that I need to make that you don't necessarily need to make based upon where I am. Or maybe there's some things, some constraints with my time that don't exist for your time, but for me to walk in complete obedience to God is what I need to do. It's not just, what do I not do? It's how do I walk in in the fullness of obedience to God? Think about it just in terms of of parenting. Sometimes I'll I'll tell my kids like, hey, let's um, let's just spend some family time together. And uh, a kid will say, how much? I don't know, like an hour. Okay, does this count? Like, have we started? Why? Are we rounding up? I, I don't know. I really hadn't thought through. Okay, well, let, you know, are we done yet? Now can, I go, can we go early? You know. And, and in, in a sense, you know, they're, they're being respectful. They're, they're, they're doing what I've asked. But, you know, the heart isn't necessarily behind it, right? And sometimes we as Christians approach obeying God the same way. Okay, have I done the bare minimum? God, are you happy yet? Now can I do the things that I would like to do? That's not how we make decisions. We obeying God means saying, okay, God, what is it that you want me to do with my life? And I want to pursue that with with wholehearted abandon. Just like when my kids say, Dad, we are so excited about spending time together as well. Let's let's do this and let's do that. Let's proactively, here's what we can do together. What what joy it brings, and the same is true, the joy that it brings to our Heavenly Father when we're passionate about fulfilling his ultimate purpose for us. So we, we obey God by, by thinking of what, what his purpose for us is. We also obey God as we submit to authority. We come to his word. We say, okay, here are the specifics of how I, I glorify you. And we also submit to earthly authorities as we have the ability to do so. But notice it's not refusing to speak truth to them when we know they're in the wrong. Paul tells Festus here in verse 10, I've done no wrong as you yourself know very well. 
His, his very act of appealing to Caesar in this passage that we'll talk about in a moment is him saying, Festus, I know you're not doing the right thing. Obeying God also means keeping a clear conscience. We rightly calibrate our conscience and then we, we walk in obedience to it. The, the conscience that God has given us as we calibrate it according to his words. And so this means as I think about specific biblical principles, I think through, okay, how can I apply this in a way that's consistent with obedience to my conscience? Maybe for, for some of us that means, okay, I, I, I want to obey the, the commandment to keep the Lord's day. And so, you know, I, I'm not, I don't believe all the restrictions that exist in the Old Testament exist as they did today, but I'm not worried about manna collecting or something like that, but I'm going to walk in obedience to the Lord and as I submit my conscience to his word and, and how I spend my, my Sundays. So I'm going to walk in obedience to the Lord in, in that area. I'm going to keep a clear conscience. So I, as I think about making a decision, I trust in God's sovereignty and I, I obey God. I trust God and I obey God. And that's going to eliminate a lot of potential choices that I might make. Human decisions are going to flourish in a place where we have quiet confidence that we're striving to be obedient to the Lord. Look what Paul says here. He's, he's able to, with, with great confidence, say, look, I haven't violated the laws of the Jews. I haven't violated the laws of the temple. I haven't violated any Roman laws against Caesar. And, and Paul is able to say, I've, I've done no wrong as you yourself know. If, if I'm a wrongdoer, deserve to die, willing to, but I haven't. So we trust God, we obey God. The third thing we do as we make decisions, as we assess our circumstances. We assess our circumstances. God has given us the ability to have wisdom and to, to look around us, to assess reality, and, and to consider what we need to do. Now, what does Paul do here? Paul remembers what's happened in, verse, in, in chapter 23. Remember what happened in chapter 20, 23? Chapter 23. He was told, look, we're going to take you from Jerusalem to, to, to Caesarea. And he knew that the Jews were planning to ambush him. Remember, his, his nephew told him, okay, Paul, this is what they're going to do. And so Paul recognizes that the Jews are not favorably disposed to him. He also remember, he also has recognized, like, hey, two years have gone by. And as, as I think about the, the circumstance, they're still really intent on, on dealing with me. They, they have not changed. There hasn't been repentance here. And so he thinks about that. He recognizes that Festus wants to ingratiate himself to the Jews. And so what is Paul doing? He's using the wisdom that God has given him to assess the circumstances and say, okay, here's a wise course of action. Here's a foolish course of action. And, and it doesn't seem like a very wise course of action for me to go to Jerusalem if I can prevent it. That doesn't seem like a way to, to uh, lengthen my lifespan, to maximize doing the things that God, has want me, want, that God wants me to do. And so, he looks to the Word. He knows what God wants him to do. Now he, he's examined the world. Okay, what are the, what's the wise thing to do? So he assesses his circumstances. And we do the same, right? So, okay, here's, here's what obedience to the Lord looks like. Here's what pursuing his glory looks like in my life. And I look at the circumstances. I look at the needs that are around me. I look at the opportunities that are around me. I look at the limitations that exist to me. And I, I assess those things. As I make decisions, as part of making decisions, human responsibility, divine sovereignty, assessing our circumstances. Number four, we embrace hardship. We embrace hardship. We don't pursue paths that 
allow us to avoid the consequences of our sin. In fact, as we think about the decisions that we need to make, we don't always pursue the paths that are, that are necessarily the easiest. That's also not how we make decisions. So Paul, remember what happens is he makes his way to Jerusalem. Paul is, is told by people that he's, he's going to suffer if he, if he goes to Jerusalem. It says that, uh, we think about uh, uh, chapter 20, and how in verse 23, he's talking to the elders from Ephesus at Miletus. He says, The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I, I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so Paul says, look, I, I'm, I'm willing to do that. And as he comes to chapter 21, and, and people are trying to get him to, to not do the hard things that God has, has called them to do, Paul says, no, I'm, I'm going to continue to, to do what the Lord has, has called me to do. Verse 13 of Acts 21, Paul says, why, why are you, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready. And, and as we make decisions, this is the, the conviction that each of us must have as we make decisions in life, Paul says this, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So I, I think about what God's ultimate purpose for my life is, and I say, okay, as I make decisions, my, my objective is not to minimize hardship. It's also not, by the way, to maximize hardship. We're not uh, someone who just believes in making our lives as difficult as possible. If I have Option A that's going to glorify God, and option B that's going to glorify God. I'm not going to just uh, automatically choose whichever one's going to cause me the most pain. We're, we're not gluttons for punishment. But I say, okay, part of my, my, my overarching calculus is what is going to glorify God. And so I'm going to embrace hardship if the path to obedience involves a life of hardship. And again, I think this is something many Christians need to think about because we often think, that hardship is a negative thing. So let's say that we have this path of obedience that God has called us to. Sometimes we think, okay, well, on this path is hardship, so clearly that's God calling me away from this path. And the answer is, is no, that, that's not necessarily true. Well, I, I, I think that maybe I'm going to be called to ministry, but, but ministry involves these, these difficulties for my, my life that certainly God wouldn't want me to undergo those difficulties. That's not the right way to think about God's calling on your life. Well, I, I know that God wants me to be involved in, in serving other people in the church, but if I, if I serve other people in the church, it's going to need to be very difficult for me because I'm going to have to uh, not watch as much Netflix, right? And the Lord certainly doesn't want that, right? No, we embrace hardship, right? We recognize that walking in obedience to the Lord means that the, the idols that we may have for ourselves are, are not going to be worshipped. We're not forced to choose the hardest path, but we embrace hardship as a potential means that God would use us to conform us to the image of his son as we walk in obedience. And then, uh, number five, we make decisions. We, we make decisions. By the way, Paul, when I say he embraces hardship here, he's, he's willing, he says, look, if, if I've done something wrong, I'm, I, I'm, I'm willing to die. Like, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever is necessary to, to honor God, but, but that's not the case here. And then, well, then we make decisions. And so what, is Paul, what decision does Paul make? He says, 
He says at the very end of verse 11, I appeal to Caesar. Now, now what does that mean? What, what decision has Paul just made there? It appears that every Roman citizen had the right to make an appeal to a magistrate above the one that was rendering the verdict. So here's the guy rendering the verdict, and a Roman citizen would have the right to appeal. Now, that we don't know exactly how all this worked out in practice, but potentially the, the magistrate wouldn't always grant that appeal, right? So you had the right to appeal, and the magistrate, I think, in, in some circumstances could say, nah, we're good. But especially in cases where the law was a little bit unclear, the magistrate would, would need to say, okay, um, I've, I've issued my ruling, but you've appealed to Caesar, so you can go and have your case heard by the magistrate above me. You can have your case heard by, by Caesar. Now, this was, this, the Caesar here would be Nero during this time. This was during the early part of Nero's reign before he was seen as, as unstable. But here, uh, he, he does, what, what, does, what does Festus do? What does he do in response to, to Festus? Perhaps this is a relief to him. He had the Jews on one side, he had justice on the other, and he wasn't quite sure what to do, so, so maybe it's a little bit of a relief. But it says in the text that he conferred with his council. These would have been a group of advisors who were well-versed in Roman law, and he didn't have to do what they told him to do. He could have said, thanks for your advice, I'm going to do something else. But then there would be a record that he had gone against their counsel, right? And so if, if this ever came back to, to, to uh, haunt him later, they could say, look, we told him that this wasn't the, the legal thing to do. He didn't listen to us. He made this decision. In this circumstance, he talks to the counsel. Apparently the counsel say, yeah, this, this is an area that's unclear. And Festus re replies in verse 12, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so as we think about Paul, he makes a decision here, he makes a choice, and his choice is in line with what God has told him would happen as well, that he would make his way to Rome. Paul's goal is to be obedient to God, to, to, to get the gospel to Rome. He knows that this is what God wants him to do. He knows that, that by appealing to Caesar, he's potentially added years to the time that he's going to spend in prison. But he makes this decision what? Based on what he believes is the best way to glorify God, trusting in him, and trying to walk in absolute obedience. He could ask, well, what would have happened if I hadn't appealed to Caesar? In the next chapter, we're going to see that, that some, uh, you know, that, that is the, the rulers confer. They said, boy, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we sure would let him go. We don't know if that's true. We don't know if that's not true. What we know is in this moment, Based upon what he believed was the best way to glorify God, this was the decision that Paul made. And he never looks back, and God brings blessing through it. One of the ways that God implements his sovereign plan is by enabling his people to make wise, God-glorifying decisions. God is sovereign no matter what. It's not our responsibility, though, to figure out every aspect of God's hidden will. We say, okay, I want to walk in obedience to God. I want to do what God has told me to do, and that's what I'm going to do. Maybe this morning, you're struggling with some decisions, right? You're saying, man, I, I am just so overwhelmed about this, this understanding, and I don't feel like I have a, a clear understanding of, thus saith the Lord. And if, you, if, I could, if I could open to Acts 25, verse 13, and the next time we open God's word together, 
we would just say, oh, you should totally take that job, or no, you should absolutely not take that job. That would be so helpful, but I, I, I'm not there, you say. Or you have this, this situation in which you're trying to, to love your parents well, and it's just that the, whatever you, you choose to do is just not going well, and you're struggling with that this morning. You're, you're in a relationship where you're trying to, to care for your spouse, and, and it's just the, the, it seems like every decision you make is the wrong one, and you're, you're overwhelmed by, 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 by what, what do I do, what decisions that I make. I, I, I want to, to most importantly honor the Lord, and I, I know that I've received eternal life by placing my faith in, in Jesus Christ. That's, that's clear. I believe that to be true, and, and now how do I walk in obedience to who I am in Christ? Maybe you're struggling with that this morning. What do you not do? What do you not do? You don't give up. You don't say, well, I, I tried to do what's right. Now I guess I can stop. You don't, you don't stop doing what's good. Don't grow weary in doing good. You also don't stop trusting the goodness of God. What do you do? You trust, you obey, you assess your circumstances, you embrace the hardship that God might be calling you to endure, and then you make decisions, trusting in a God who loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ability you've, you've given us to walk in obedience to you and as we think about this moment today, uh, we know that there are many things that, that are dark about the path ahead of us. We don't know what will happen in the next moment. We don't know what will happen in the next 12 hours. We don't know what ha will happen in the next 12 years. We don't know when you will return. You don't know when you will call us home. So, Father, though the, the future is, is shrouded in mystery, we trust in you in this, this moment. We believe your ultimate purposes for us are good. And Father, for those who are here this morning, we, we know that the clear teaching of your word is to trust in your son, Jesus Christ. And so if there are, there are those this morning who haven't trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, we pray that that message from your word would come through with, with crystal clarity this morning, that people would recognize their need for a Savior and trust in your son, Jesus. And Father, as we do that, we pray that our overarching desire would be to, to walk in obedience to you that we would take everything else off the, the, the table of our lives and say, your glory is, is of utmost importance to us. The, the exaltation of your name is, is, is what drives every decision that we make and that we would pursue walking in a way that brings glory and honor to your great name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.